Hey, good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good week. Hope you're staying warm. It is winter, and we are reminded daily by the snow and the cold that it's still winter. Last week was Groundhog's Day. That little bastard saw his shadow. We got six more weeks of this crap. Yeah, it's about the time of year I usually head south to play a little golf, but thank you, COVID. Not happening this year, but happy to be sitting in talking some Super Bowl and Syracuse hoops and a few other topics with you as well. You know, it's funny. The Super Bowl came and went on Sunday, and most of us wish it just went away because it was a boring game. And in Western New York, seeing Tom Brady hoist another trophy wasn't exactly the most pleasurable sighting we've had in a long time. But pretty amazing that the NFL powered through this season and got the season in. If you think about it, the way this season started, the uncertainty, there were times they've got to put an extra week in, they got to push things back. The NFL st- stayed the course, and because they stayed the course, they were able to get this season in on time, and I think it, uh, it deserves a lot of credit. I don't know if it was always the right decision that they made, but in the end, the decisions worked out, and there's no denying the best team won the Super Bowl. And, you know, before we talk a ton about what happened, to me, the biggest part of the game was the defensive side of the ball for Tampa. And these two teams, Tampa and Kansas City, had played earlier in the season. And Tyreek Hill torched them. I believe it was 273 yards in the first half of that game and three touchdowns. Credit to Todd Bowles, because he looked at the film of that dissected what went wrong and what they did, came up with a game plan, and it worked. And, you know, if you look at what the Buffalo Bills had done earlier in the season and gotten torched on the ground by the Kansas City Chiefs, they totally changed things up and got torched through the air. The adjustments that Todd Bowles made were essentially to do what Buffalo did the first time. But what Kansas City couldn't do this time was stop the pass rush of Tampa Bay. Buffalo, I think, had the right approach. Game one, kept them in the game, dared Kansas City to run. They did. Clyde Edwards-Alaire had his biggest game as a pro in that game. But Buffalo was in that game. They weren't blown out of that game. They were in possession of the ball in a one-score game late. That's giving yourself a chance to win. I thought that what Todd Bowles did is what Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier should have done. They had the right approach game one. They just didn't completely execute it. Game two was an awful approach. I thought it was a terrible, terrible game plan by McDermott and Frazier. So the Buccaneers, their defensive staff led by Todd Bowles, who I think will get another head coaching job and deserves another head coaching job, did a great job in this one and gave the Bucks the opportunity to win this game. Going into the game, the more I thought about it through the week, the more I thought about the injury to Eric Fisher, the right tackle for the Chiefs, the more I thought that the front four with Shaq Barrett and Vita Vea coming back, having Sue up there, and of course, JPP playing 
with the intensity that he has. Crazy stats come out of the play, out of that Super Bowl. JPP now has never lost a playoff game. He's eight and zero career in the playoffs. It's one of those. Wait, what? Yeah, Jason Pierre-Paul has never lost a playoff game. Crazy. But I thought that that front four could create some pressure. My question was, could the back end hold up? And we talked about it last week in the podcast. And Antoine Winfield Jr., was he going to be healthy enough to play? Jordan Whitehead, was he going to be good to go? These two safeties were going to be a key role in their, in this game, whether coming up to stop the run or doubling on Hill and Kelsey. And, you know, it's funny, as you look at the stats, the fact that Travis Kelsey had 10 catches for 133 yards, I was shocked by that. That was one of those stats I was like, really? 10 catches? When? And it just shows how much was done late. The, the stat that came out of this game that I thought was the most telling was that Patrick Mahomes – had to run 497 yards before releasing the ball on passes. Patrick Mahomes, I didn't think, played a great game, and I don't think anyone could have played a great game in that stretch. But I thought he battled his ass off, and I think that's all you ask of a football player. Go out there and give everything you have. He made some throws from some angles that I thought were spectacular. I also thought there were times he held the ball way too long. And because of that, the Bucks were able to get home, get hits on him, force bad throws. It's not all on Patrick Mahomes, but some of it lays at its feet. Eric Bieniemy and Andy Reid, I think their lack of ability to adjust was shown in this game. And I don't know if it's Bieniemy or Reid or both, whoever had a bad game on Sunday. This was a bad game. It was a bad play call game. They were dared to run the football. They were given the opportunity to run the football, yet they chose not to. And if you think they couldn't have, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire had nine carries for 64 yards. Almost seven yards a carry. It's over seven yards a carry. It's crazy to think that you're going to be given a chance to run the ball. You do so, you have success, but you choose not to go with it. Is that stubbornness, arrogance? or just sticking to what you thought was going to work going into the game. They, in my opinion, game plan for the same type of defense that they saw in the regular season. And when that wasn't there, they didn't make an adjustment. And again, I don't know if it's Andy Reid. I don't know if it's Eric Bieniemy. Bieniemy, a lot of people in the media, and of course the fans, very upset that this guy hasn't gotten a head coaching job. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are so few African-American coaches right now in the NFL. And Bietami seems to be a hot assistant who happens to be African-American as well. And, and I think they're, in the media anyway, in the fans, there's a correlation there. And I, I don't know if there is or not. I, it's 2021. I really hope there isn't. I hope we're beyond looking at the color of a man's skin when it comes to evaluating his qualifications for a job. I, I do know that Bienemy has some stuff in his past that's going to make it a little sticky when he gets hired, and I think he will get hired. But this game didn't do him any favors. As a matter of fact, the African-American offensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Byron Leftwich, had a much better game, in my opinion, than Bienemy did. And I know one game 
doesn't mean anything. But I think Leftwich has been very undervalued for the job that he has done through this year. I, I think the other thing you need to look at when you look at Tampa is how well they've drafted as of late. Their first-round pick this year was Tristan Wirfs, who started day one at right tackle. I think he missed like five plays all year or something crazy like that, allowed one sack. He's just been a rock at right tackle. He was the 13th overall pick. He wasn't even the first tackle taken in the draft. It just shows how good Jason Light has been evaluating talent to get this guy a plug-and-play right tackle to protect Brady. Antoine Winfield Jr., who's just been a phenomenal safety in his rookie year, was the second pick this year. Look at year the year 2019 draft. Devin White goes number one. The best player on the field Sunday was Devin White. The MVP of that game should not have been Tom Brady. It should have been Devin White. And you look further down, Vita Vea, who came back, was a big factor in this game, was the number one pick in 2018. Ronald Jones was the second pick. And I think it's important to add out, to add on to this, that in the last three drafts, there have been five players in the secondary selected in the first three rounds by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We talk about the defensive line, and rightly so, they were great, but the coverage was there as well. Defensive line can only do so much. And if you're a Bills fan and you're watching this game, I don't know that you can bring in a pass rusher that's going to bring the desired effect. But I do know if you go out and get another corner who's the equal of Tredavious White or maybe close to Tredavious White, that makes that secondary that much better. Coverage can equal sacks as well. And I think that's something teams are always looking for the edge rusher. They're hard to find. There aren't many out there. But you certainly can go get corners and improve your secondary play. And I think if I'm Brandon Bean, that's where I'm looking. I've talked now probably about 10 minutes about the Super Bowl, and I barely mentioned Tom Brady. I guess now is where I have to get into that. Brady got the MVP, and of course he's going to. At 58 years old, when you win a Super Bowl, you deserve the MVP. Brady played a good game. He wasn't spectacular. He's 21 and 29, 201 yards, three touchdowns. He was in control of the game. And that's where I think the greatness of Brady, you see sometimes with a throw, but oftentimes you see it here with the management ability. Once the lead came to me, there was no doubt this game was going to be closed out by Brady. They got ahead and they were doing the right things offensively and continued to do the right things defensively. I thought that Brady was in control of this game, but the running game was a huge part of it as well. Leonard Fournette, 89 yards on the ground in the touchdown. Ronald Jones, 61 yards. They combined 28 carries for 150 yards. That's huge. You're going to run the ball against Kansas City for that type of success. That means Patrick Mahomes isn't on the field. That means Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey aren't beating you with wide open plays. I've talked about it all year that I didn't think Brady was the key to the Bucks' success offensively. I thought it was a running game. When Ronald Jones went out, they struggled a little bit late. Came back, and in the playoffs, you saw a different Leonard Fournette. 
I don't know where Fournette goes from here, but he was a much different back in the playoffs than he was during the regular season. A lot more motivation, I believe. And, you know, I don't know if that makes the team want to sign him or not want to sign him. But I know this, that there's something there for Fournette. And if he goes somewhere and, you know, there are teams that could use running backs, he goes somewhere and he gets in the right situation, I think he could be a very effective player. He certainly wasn't for St. Doug Marone down in Jacksonville, but I think he can be going forward. Gronk was big in this game, not only in the passing game, but in the running game, being able to block. And I, I don't know if Gronk comes back. He, he looked old at times this year, but as the season went on, it seemed to settle in where he got a little more comfortable with the, the way things were, and they got a little more comfortable with him. I still think the the best option for the tight end position for Tampa is Cameron Brake. But what Gronk does is something very important. And there's going to be games where Gronk turns it up. And he did on Sunday, two touchdowns. He had six catches. It was great to see that. You know, if I had told you that Tampa was going to win this game with Mike Evans having one catch for 31 yards, Curtis Godwin having two catches for nine yards, would you have, Thought I was crazy. Antonio Brown catches five balls, but not, not many yards, but he gets a touchdown, and he's still a piece of crap. And to, let, let's not forget that. You mentioned Antonio Brown's greatness. That's fine. Mention that he's a piece of crap as a human being as well. It, it's just one of those things with this team that there were a lot of answers, but the reality is the answers were up front. The Bucks offensive line, led by Hobart, grad Ali Marpat what a great local tie that is D3 kid goes to school in Geneva and ends up being a Super Bowl champion after being an unlikely second round pick just love to see that and and you watch the way they controlled the Chiefs and got into Chris Jones no doubt in my mind they saw in film from the Bills game that Chris Jones can be encouraged to do things that he shouldn't do. It was certainly was worth the shot to try to bait them. So there were a lot of elements to this game. And, you know, we could talk about statistics and all that. One other element of this game, and I, I got to throw this out there before going much further, was the officiating. And look, the officials didn't decide this game. This game was decided because the best team on Sunday won, the, won that game. The best team was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But this game was officiated differently. There were plays in this game that were called pass interference or illegal contact that have not been called all playoffs. And I know the Bucs got a huge call against the Packers. That's an easy call. When you're grabbing a guy's jersey when he's running across the middle, it's a flag that needs to be thrown 100 out of 100 times. It's too obvious. It's too much of a, an advantage or creates a disadvantage, however you want to look at it. It just can't happen, and you can't allow it. And so for the people that are on the conspiracy theory, I'm not down with you. However, Al Riveron and his crew, this is now the second time in three years they've done this, where they have – decided to officiate a Super Bowl differently. 
Remember the Philly Super Bowl a couple years ago? How all of a sudden Wendell Smallwood, I believe it was, in the back of the end zone, the ball may have moved, but they rule it a touchdown anyway. Where all season long, when looking on film and things like that, it was ruled incomplete. Yeah, this is another adjustment by the NFL League office, and not in a good way, that they're going to make themselves officiate the game the way they think it should for the biggest game of the year. And I think that's a bunch of bullshit. You call the games the same way all the way through. And that's consistency. That's letting the players, coaches, and even the officials know what's acceptable and what's not. And when you call the game the same way from game one, and I don't care if you tweak it during the playoffs, you know, you want to say during the playoffs, we're going to let them play a little bit more, a little more grab and a little more holding. That's fine. I'm okay with that. It's like playoff hockey. If you're in overtime of playoff hockey, there's not going to be a penalty. It's understood. Play through everything, boys. Here we go. Players know what to expect. In this case, you had the playoffs officiated one way. You get to the biggest game of the year, and it's officiated another way. And I, I personally don't think that's something that should ever be done in sports you're having the greatest impact of the game officiating wise in the biggest game of the year it just makes no sense it's counterintuitive i really don't know why al riveron and his staff decided this was the way to go but they did so therefore the game was penalized heavily in kansas city who got away with a whole lot of stuff early on against Buffalo and likewise against Cleveland, as far as clutching and grabbing, they didn't get away with it on Tampa. And, you know, you look at the penalties, 11 for 120 yards versus four for 39 yards. It's tough to say that's not a factor. Again, I don't think ultimately it had a lot to do with this game. The best team won the game that like it or hate it was Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But the reality is the NFL, again, had a terrible decision going into the game. And whether they translated that to the crew or the crew did that on their own, Carl Sheffers was the referee and his crew. I I just, I do not like it. And and there were, there's stupid plays. When McCarl Hardman lines up offsides on a field goal, gives a first down it's just a bonehead play that's not the referee's fault that's you being stupid and not knowing where to line up you can't blame the refs for that one so it's not all the referees but again i just don't like changing the way you're refereeing games as the season is in progress It, it, it just doesn't set well with me and i think the league And Al Riveron specifically need to stop doing this. And, you know, if Riveron keeps his job and I'm never in favor of anyone losing a job, I just don't think he's in the right position to head NFL officiating. And I've said it many times. I hope they get him somebody to work with that. we, We shouldn't be talking about this. There's no reason for us to be discussing officiating in a game that was a blowout. But yet we are because it was a factor early on in this game.
switch gears, talk Syracuse basketball. And, man, it's not a pleasant conversation these days, is it, when we talk Syracuse basketball. Rewatched the Clemson game last night. And for that, I, I don't know what to say about myself other than I must, at some deep level, really despise myself to force me to sit through that again. I don't know how Jim Beheim sits through these film sessions and, and breaks things down. The, the crazy thing is what I came away with was it's Groundhog Day. It's, it's the same thing over and over again. It's the lack of interior defense. It's the lack of execution on offense and ball movement, player movement. And because of that, a lot of quick three-point shots, not – very good three-point shots, it ended up amounting to one of the worst halves of basketball I've ever seen a Syracuse team play. Think about that statement. I've been watching this team since the mid-'70s. That's a long time, and I know it means I'm old as dirt. But when we're talking 45-plus years of watching this team play, I don't know if I've ever seen a worse half of basketball when you take everything into account in the first half against Clemson. Syracuse made three more field goals than you and I did in the first half. Three total field goals in the first half. They shot 12%. They were three for 25. The game got off to a good start because Buddy Beheim knocked down a wide-open three, and I'm thinking, okay, here we go. Buddy's out of his slump. Yeah, no, no, Buddy's a problem. A couple of years ago, college basketball decided to move the three-point line back. I, I think it went from 20 feet, 9 inches to 21 feet, 6 inches, if I'm not mistaken. The extra 15 inches that moved the line out, in my opinion, was going to have an effect on the way Syracuse plays defense, the Vaughn and 2-3 zone. Because you generally have to guard the three-point line. Well, a couple things have happened now. With the three-point line being moved back, players are now shooting the ball from deeper than they ever have. You routinely see guys shoot jumpers from three feet beyond the arc. The arc is not there. You, you don't often see a guy with his toe on the line because they generally are a foot or two behind the line. In a zone defense... If you're playing offense against them, the first thing you want to do is spread out that defense. Well, naturally, if you have three guys on the wing and at the top of the key at the three-point line, that defense is more spread out now than it's ever been. Syracuse hasn't been able to adjust to that for a couple reasons. One, they haven't had Barama Sidibe all season long. Marek Dolajai, who's not the long athletic center that Syracuse usually has in the middle of their zone is trying his best, but you're routinely seeing the middle of the zone. Everyone talks about it every game you watch. Get the ball offensively to the ACC logo just below the free throw line. It's wide open every time because the guards now are pushed out further, so there's more space behind them to dump that ball to the ACC logo, which brings Marek the center man in the 2-3 up, which leaves the low box wide open because if the wing defenders don't get out on the shooters, you're giving up a three. So they're extended as well. I actually think Syracuse has played better defense this year and given themselves a better chance to win when they've gone to a full-court pressure. 
yes, they've given some easy looks up, but it also creates a tempo of which they play better offense. This is a team that doesn't move the ball well offensively. They're not an assist-driven team. They're a get me get my own shot sort of team. And, and it's not working, frankly. It is not working. What is going on has been going on all season long. When they're out-rebounded, they lose. Well, Saturday against Clemson, they were out-rebounded 42-27. to 27. You're out-rebounded that badly. You're not going to win basketball games. Brahma Sidibe played his first game since the first game, and he's not close to being back. His stat line was awful, and if you watched him, his rustiness was even more apparent. There were a couple times he caught the ball in a dump down where he could simply go up with a quick little baby hook, and it's a bunny. It's got to be a basket every time. It didn't happen because he wasn't ready. He wasn't in rhythm. And he took himself out of the play. Brema, I believe, will get better as the season goes along. He played 11 minutes. He had four fouls. He didn't have a rebound in 11 minutes. Didn't have a rebound in 11 minutes. Think about that. Marek Dolajai, the other center, in 37 minutes had four. So your two guys who played the five combined for 48 minutes and four rebounds. Think that's a problem? Because I do. Syracuse recruits the same type of players year in, year out. Long athletic wings that fit the zone. They like long guards who are combo guards who fit the zone. And the five is not a stretch five ever. A five is a guy who's long and athletic and can play the middle of the zone. Think of the players on this roster who play the five position. Marek, who's playing out of position, so I want to go easy on him. But he's long, he's fairly athletic, but he's got zero bulk to him. Brahma Sidibe, long and athletic, very little bulk. They've got two young kids, Jean Balajac and the kid from the Netherlands, who are both very long and athletic, but they're also incredibly undersized physically. They do have a kid, Frank Aslam, who's got some size and could potentially be somebody that they turn to with some size. But again, this is Jim Beheim's ideology for building a team. This is the center position I want. This is who I want. And, you know, I, I always point this out. And I, I remember when this happened, I thought it was a big deal. And I was on radio and people thought I was overreacting. A few years back, there was a kid who was not going to be a five-star, but a developmental center project that Syracuse got out-recruited by by Mark Schmidt in St. Bonaventure. Bonnies are having a hell of a year down in Olean. They're having an excellent season. You know one of the best players on that team is? Osin Osunye, who's the center that the Bonnies out-recruited Syracuse for. To me, that was a signaling of things when St. Bonaventure's out recruiting Syracuse for a player, that's a problem. And Bayheim's recruiting has suffered greatly. They've got good players on this team. They don't have a great player. They don't have a really good player. I, I think Quincy Gurrier can be, he'll likely leave 
the program before he does become that really good player. I think Dari Richmond could be, and same with him. I, I see him as a Michael Carter-Williams type player. Kadari Richmond actually played pretty well on Saturday. He didn't finish a whole lot, but he had five steals and five, or he had six steals and five rebounds to go along with his three assists. Something that happened in this game that I thought was a good thing was Joe Girard saying, screw it. And I don't mean literally. Girard has been on a short leash. He hasn't played well. He hasn't shot well at all. And, and it's funny coming out of Glens Falls, we all know the story. But the one thing I was sure that Joe Girard would be able to do was shoot it. The one thing I think he's really struggled with in his time at Syracuse has been shooting the basketball. If he shoots it the way I think he can, we're not talking about Joe Girard the way we do talk about him. But in the second half of this game, after getting yanked, he started taking the ball inside and pulling up and hitting short little jumpers. The thing about Girard that we forget he wasn't just a shooter at Glens Falls. He was a scorer. Yes, he's vertically challenged. Yes, he's not a great athlete to go against a lot of guys. But a lot of times that doesn't matter because you've got an innate ability to get your shot off. In the second half, he took it in the lane and he did things with it. And I hope that continues to translate going further because it's been a while now that when teams go tight man-to-man, Gerard somewhat disappears. On Saturday, he took it at that tight man-to-man, and it was effective. He got to the lane a little bit, did miss two free throws, which shows how off his shot is right now. But he he did things that you need to do. Buddy Beheim's a problem, and not in a good way. Not like the kids say he's a problem. This is like the old guys like me say he's a problem. It's not just his shot. The shot needs to go. He's 3 of 13 on Saturday, and I said he hit the first shot of the game. It appears as though the confidence has gone from Buddy Behar. He had a great first half a couple weeks ago, and I thought that would bring it back, and it hasn't. It's almost like he doesn't feel he's going to make every shot he takes the way he did last year. And when you're a shooter and you think you're going to make every shot, well, you might not make them all. But you certainly get the good release that, and if you've got a good release, like Buddy has, Buddy's got a great release. That ball's going to go in more often than it's not. It's the confidence with him, and I don't know how you get it going. It, you know, a lot of this to me calls for Jim Beheim to step in and do something that he won't do. Jim Beheim's not going to adjust. He's seventy-six years old. He's won eleven hundred games. He knows more about basketball than we all do combined, and he'll be the first to tell you that. And if you want to try something different, he'll be the first to tell you, go get your own team and try it on that. But I think it's time Jim Beheim makes an adjustment, and I think it involves playing more guys, which he won't do, and playing more up-tempo and creating full-court basketball. He's got a team that – lends itself to that style of play. You've tried your way, and your way's not working. Try the other way and see if that's going to work any better. I mean, he's been more open to the press at times this year, but I think he needs to go press quite a bit. And, and the other thing I would do is this. I would start with Brahma Sidibe in the middle. And, and when he's physically ready, and I don't think he is yet, 
make him a starter, move Marek to the four and Quincy Gurrier to the three. That improves your rebounding, in my opinion, right there. It also improves your interior defense. So we've made strides there. Now you look at the backcourt. Well, that means that there's three guys for two spots, Alan Griffin, Joe Girard, and Buddy Beheim. One of them would not start. Well, I would go with two of them shouldn't start because I do think Kadari Richmond should get the start. So I'm looking at four guys for two spots. I start Kadari at the one, and I don't care who you start at the two, whether it's Buddy Beheim, Joe Girard III, or Alan Griffin. But I think you need to change things up because if you go up-tempo, Kadari Richmond's got to be your point guard. He's the one who can do that. And Griffin, Beheim, and Gerard are all guys who can run and fill in different ways or pull up at the three line and get a shot off. So there are a lot of things that you can do to make adjustments. I don't think Jim Beheim's willing to do it. I frankly know he won't do it. But something, if you want to salvage this season, SU's 10 and 6, they're 4 and 5 in the ACC. They're not even on the bubble right now. They've got to get on a winning streak almost immediately. They've got seven games left on their schedule. I think they got to get to 15 wins to get a look at the bubble. NC State tonight on the road is going to be a tough game. We saw NC State a couple weeks ago in the Dome playing without a couple guys. One of those guys is going to be back tonight. This is going to be a tough game. But Syracuse needs to show they can win on the road. Saturday, they play BC. Should get a win there. They go on the road next week to Louisville. They could beat Louisville, but I don't see them beating them on the road. This isn't a typical Louisville team. They come home to Notre Dame. That's got to be a win. Notre Dame's having a down year. They play at Duke. If you're ever going to win in Cameron, this is the year you're going to go down there and get a win. Got to get that win as well. At Georgia Tech and Carolina at home finish the season. I think they can play with Carolina. I don't think they can beat Georgia Tech on the road. I'm looking at three or four wins, best case scenario, the rest of the year. That means this is not a tournament team yet again. And again, I'm sorry, it falls at the Hall of Famer's feet because he hasn't recruited well enough. He hasn't made any adjustments. This team's good enough to win. 15 games in this season. And and look, I'm not drawing judgment on only this season. This is a trend. This is a trend that's gone on now for the last 10 years that Syracuse has slipped recruiting-wise. They haven't done the job on the floor and live on the bubble year in, year out. What changes? What's the definition of insanity? Trying the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result? That's what Syracuse basketball has become. Definition of insanity. Something's got to give. I don't want to see Jim Beheim walk out the door because I don't know what will remain when he does. But I think the time is here. I really think the time has come for Jim Beheim to go bye-bye. And it's sad because I, I, it's a guy I admire. I like a lot. I think he is one of the best college basketball coaches in the history of the game. 
I just think we all have an expiration date. And his has finally come up. And he outlasted that expiration date a lot longer than anybody else would have. So that's my Syracuse basketball eulogy for the week. Major League Baseball, big signing this week. Trevor Bauer spurs the Mets to go to the Dodgers. And, you know, as a Mets fan, I was very much hoping Trevor Bauer would be a Met. Jake DeGrom, Trevor Bauer, Mark Stroman, it's really nice one, two, three. You eventually, you've got Carlos Carrasco in the mix. Eventually get Noah Syndergaard back. It's strong. It's a strong rotation. I thought that would be great. But when you sign a free agent, you better be sure he's the right guy. When you pay big money, you better be sure it's the right guy getting them in the right situation. And, and Trevor Bauer's $85 million first two years, to me, are problematic not only for the Dodgers, but for baseball. This guy's got an opt-out after year one where he gets $40 million. He won't do it because he's going to get $42 million in year or $45 million in year two and has an opt-out then too. Those $40 millions are about the same as a couple teams' payrolls in Major League Baseball. And you can't tell me that's good for the game. It's terrible for the game. The Dodgers are loaded. Dodgers, Clayton Kershaw, obviously, always going to be the head of that rotation. Then you bring in Powell. Julio Urias, who's just been great. Helping into what the Dodgers thought when they brought him up as a 19-year-old. Tony Gonsolin was great last year. He had an 8-3-6 whip. Walker Bueller is as good a young pitcher as you'll find in the game. Even Dustin May is really, really good. This is a deep rotation. This is a team that won the World Series in large part because of their rotation last year. They've got, obviously, great hitting as well. You had Mookie Betts to Bellinger and Seager and those guys. You've got something going. But when Major League Baseball has you know, three or four teams trying to make a run at it, the Dodgers, they don't care about the luxury tax. They're going to spend money. The Mets have shown that they're going to try and spend money this offseason. The Padres have been aggressive making moves. The Braves do what the Braves do. They make smart moves year in, year out. But the bulk of Major League Baseball is trying to get out from under contracts. And I just don't think it's good for the game. But then again, why would you care about the game? Why would you care about Major League Baseball? I mean, we just found out yesterday that Major League Baseball this year is going to have seven-inning double-headers, and we're going to start extra-inning games with a guy on second again, which is absolutely ridiculous. But we can't decide on whether or not there should be expanded playoffs or the designated hitter rule. As of now, both are off the table. Spring training starts a week from tomorrow, I believe, players report. And you don't know officially if there's not going to be a DH. If you're going to have a DH... You build your roster one way. If you don't, you build another way. Yet here we are a week ahead of spring training, and nobody knows for sure whether or not there's going to be a designated hitter in the National League this year. They're saying no, but the extended playoffs, MLBPA has said no to that. I do believe there's some wiggle room on both of these issues. It's just crazy to me that 
we're heading full steam into this season with the thought of playing 162 games, and yet Major League Baseball doesn't know what it's doing. And, and again, there's no competitive balance in this league whatsoever. The Pirates are giving away – I used to refer when I was doing my radio show – is the Pirates is being like a team, like Target is a store. You know, you go to Target, you can buy, you know, new socks, or you can buy something to cook in, or you can buy a pair of sunglasses or a TV. You know, whatever you want, Target has it. That's what's like shopping with the Pirates. What do you need, a catcher? Yeah, we got a good backup young catcher. You can have him. Oh, you need a pitcher, Jamison Tyone. Yeah, take him. He was really good a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's just bizarre. And yet, then you've got the Dodgers. They're going to spend about seven times what the Pirates spend this year in, in payroll. Do you think that's competitive balance? Do we even pretend to care about the lack of competitive balance in baseball? Rob Manfred doesn't care. I guess why should we? It, it's just one every week I get ready to do this podcast. And I look at what's going on with Rob Manfred and with baseball, and I just get frustrated because it's it's lack of leadership and poor decision making, and it's continuing to com- compound itself in a way that's not good. Oh, speaking of lack of leadership and poor decision making, switch to hockey real quick, huh? How about the Sabers? We're up to now nine people in the Sabres organization who have COVID. Dylan Cousins, Taylor Hall, Curtis Lazar, Casey Middlestat, Tobias Reedier, Rasmus Stalin, Jake McKay, Brandon Montour, and Rasmus Ristolainen. And let's not forget Ralph Kruger, the coach, also has the COVID. This stems from a game against the Devils about a week and a half ago where the Devils thought that they might have a guy be positive, but the NHL ordered them to play the game anyway. The Devils are shut down. The Sabres are shut down. The officials, the referees from that game, a couple of the linesmen got COVID. They're shut down. It's just a joke how this happened. Have you not been paying attention to what goes on? And, you know, the scary thing to me about this is, This is evidence that on ice transmissions happen, on field, on ice, on court. Tie-in high school basketball started this week in New York State. I truly hope there isn't a situation like this. Because, again, I, I don't particularly worry about the kids as much. You don't want anyone to get COVID. But if a kid gets COVID 99.9% of the time, they're fine long term. The problem is they're bringing it home to their parents or their grandparents or somebody else who may have a pre-existing condition, and, and it's dangerous, and it's a scary, scary situation. So I don't like that the NHL just blatantly ruined their opportunity for this. I think this is just blatant disregard for the rules. They thought they'd get away with it. They did not. Now they're getting slapped. And the Sabres are on pause for a long, long time. So the NHL, Gary Bettman, the clown show that is Gary Bettman, year in, year out, 
does something to remind us he's the worst leader in sports. And we have now further evidence of why that is. Hopefully all those guys I mentioned get healthy quick and the Sabres can get back on ice. But this is just, this was just an abysmal decision by the NHL to allow this to happen. And I'm not saying it's, they made it happen. They let it happen. That's almost worse. I mentioned high school hoops are back and, you know, again, it scares me a little bit because you got so many young people playing and I don't know that the young people are going to be able to safely pull this season off. But there are a couple more elements, safety-wise, that, that scare me. One is you've got a situation where you had a week of practice and then you're into games. Now, I know there were underground leagues in high school where guys were playing competitively in these leagues and so the players should be in pretty good shape. But let's just not pretend that a week of practice is okay. It's going to work out. There's going to be problems. I just hope no injuries as a lack as a result of lack of conditioning. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope that the COVID thing is able to be held in check. I don't know if some high schools are letting fans in. Some are not. I don't know how that works, but you've got a month worth of games and compressed season. The only thing I'm glad about with high school sports starting is the kids get a chance to play. If you were a senior or junior got ripped off of an ending of a season last year and would have missed your season, I'm glad you get a chance. I just hope it can be done safely. This is another thing is a guy who used to referee high school basketball for a long time. I don't think there are enough referees this year. And the guys that are refereeing, I don't know how good a shape they're going to be in because there hasn't been those leagues that you can work yourself up to to get ready to go out there and officiate. And it's a different thing. I hope there's enough refs. I hope the refs are healthy. And I hope they're doing a good job because, again, that plays into player safety, something that's really, really important. So while – I applaud the state for giving the kids a chance. I hope it's the right decision. I hope the decision was made for the right reason. And I hope that they pull this off in a way like we talked about at the top of the show with the Super Bowl pulling or with the NFL pulling off their season, getting all the way to the Super Bowl. I hope that the numbers being down locally are going to allow the basketball season to continue without a hitch. So I, I wish the best for section five and high school basketball and all the student athletes in the area. Glad they're getting the chance to play. They deserve the chance. They're getting the chance. I just hope it's safe and they're doing it for the right decision. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. We'll talk again next week on Falcon around. I'm Carl Falk. Thank you.